apologies for my croaky voice. I hope it uh, holds up. <coughs> uh, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, as Andrew said, we've got to Matthew chapter 7. Let me read to you the first five verses. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Let's pray for a moment, shall we? <clears throat> Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the revolutionary teaching of Jesus. Thank you that uh, uh, particularly the voice of Jesus has changed whole cultures has shaped lives profoundly for good and has brought people from darkness to light, death to life, from alienation towards you to reconciliation with you. And we ask, Lord, that you will be doing all of that as we... Uh, uh, Hear the words of Jesus. Speak to our hearts, we pray. Penetrate to the very depths of our being. And help us to be those who are truly shaped by your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was uh, said that in the 1960s, when I was alive, and a couple of others of us, including Andrew, were alive, it's, it's, as small children, I want to hasten to add. Um, the most famous verse outside of the church, the most widely known verse was, judge not lest ye be judged, as the King James had it, has it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Because it was the era of the sexual revolution, young people refused to be bound by the... Uh, self-righteous attitudes of a previous age. They look back on that judgmentalism of a, of a, uh, a previous age with horror. In, in my hometown, there were elderly women, a couple of elderly women who I met in the local mental hospital, totally institutionalized, unable to leave that mental ho hospital, but they had been put there as teenagers for the sole reason that they'd had a child out of wedlock. It was the era of uh, the civil rights movement as well, of Martin Luther King. I can remember listening entranced in an RE lesson to uh, a vinyl record of Dr. King's great speech, I have a dream that 
little, my little children will one day live in a nation where they are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that little black boys and little black girls will one day join hands with little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. It was inspiring. I knew exactly where I stood. At the same time, um, actually significant parts of the church were fighting a furious rearguard action against those things. The redoubtable Lady uh, um, Mary Whitehouse led marches and instigate, in, insti uh, um, instigated various prosecutions against the permissive society as they described it. Um, it was not surprising in that, that world that the world especially used to love to uh, point out to the church those words of Jesus. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Perhaps more on ominously still when West Indian believers of the Windrush generation came uh, to this country and entered British churches uh, again in the 60s, they were often told, politely but firmly, we think you might prefer to worship elsewhere. Now, there, was, there was no doubt that in the world that I grew up in, the, 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 the revolutionary, the, the liberating um, voices were shouting loudly against a judgmentalism and a moralism that often was associated with churches. How times have changed. Sadly, I don't mean particularly of churches. Churches are always wrestling with... Um, some with 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 self righteousness and um, uh, uh, and so on. Um, it was obvious in the sixties, and um, it is always the case in churches. No, what I mean about the change is the attitude of the rest of the world. Today, the most prominent uh, campaigns. The most prominent moralistic campaigns are from the world. The marches, the prosecutions, they're coming from the, the wider world. We live in the era of cancel culture, as it's been called. People are deplatformed. Groups which seek peacefully to uh, challenge the status quo on abortion are not uh, argued against. They have their materials stuffed into a wheelie bin. Uh, feminist academics get death threats from other groups or campaigns to end their tenure. Some, some would even like consensual prayer for those, um, uh, for those with unwanted same-sex attraction to be made illegal. The, the, uh, the, the vigorous moralistic campaigns now are coming from completely the other direction. There are echoes of Mary Whitehouse, indeed, a sort of mirror image of her. Somehow it seems that deep in the human heart, 
whatever your background, whatever your tradition, whatever your convictions, there is also a, a, a self-righteousness, a condemnation of others, a judgmentalism which constantly erupts. Christians are prone to it. But one thing that we've learned the last few decades is that the wider world is not immune to it. I want to suggest to you this morning that actually it is only Jesus and his gospel that can change our hearts. Uh, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been here, uh, you know that. And, uh, and as we've gone through chapter 6 uh, uh, up to now, we have described it under the sort of headline of the renovation of our heart. That is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is, is, <coughs> is instructing us in prayer, for instance. Prayer which really changes our hearts or fasting or, or storing up treasure not on earth but in heaven with all the liberation to our hearts that comes from that. Or learning not to worry as we trust birds. I'm not going to do another <laughs> act on that. Learning to have genuinely renewed hearts. And so it continues now in chapter 7. This time, learning not to be judgmental. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, I want to suggest to you that Christians, more than anyone else, should have the resources for that, because firstly, Christians believe in God's mercy and God's grace as the only thing that will save us. It's absolutely central um, to, to uh, this passage. When Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged, what he is warning is that we will be judged and condemned. Uh, that, that is, um, you know, God won't bring us to the judgment and, uh, and have a look at us and uh, say, wow, you're a great person. He will say, you fell short. Anyone who doesn't uh, believe that has either got a very, very shallow view of who God is and his extraordinary justice or a very shallow view of their own hearts. They have already blinded themselves, closed themselves off to the reality of what goes in our, on in our own hearts. Anyone who is genuinely honest about themselves and about God knows that the last thing we want is judgment. Sadly, um, in our world today, frankly, there, there doesn't seem to be much of that. People seem to be incredibly confident of their own righteousness. Um, if you go to vaccinations in uh, centres in Oxfordshire, 
uh, right now, certainly the last few days, you will find pr protesters. You'll find them shouting at parents with children, abusing those parents for having their children vaccinated. And, and quite apart from whether they're right or wrong, it is the incredible, intense moral certainty that, that, that those people have that is shocking even to, to, to ordinary people. Nothing can deviate them from, from a conviction that they are the good people and these parents are moral monsters. Yes, they're called that. As they take their children to vaccinations. That is increasingly the atmosphere that, that we live in. And of course, no Christian can possibly with integrity live like that. Anyone who has seen the reality of God must know that whatever the rights and wrongs of whatever position we take, we are fundamentally morally flawed people who should long not to be judged. The first premise, then, of the gospel is that I am not as good as I would love to think I was. Because it paves the way to the second glorious premise of the gospel. That God is far more merciful than I could ever imagine. He is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He is the God who comes to us in mercy. And our fundamental identity, everything that we sang about this morning, is based around that, that he does not come in judgment, but in mercy to those who seek his forgiveness. But then Jesus is, is taking that a, a step further, isn't he? Judge not, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, um, despite the fact that I've just talked about God generously giving us forgiveness, there is a sense in the final judgment, says, says Jesus, of reciprocity, of perfect balance. With the same measure that you give to other people, it will be measured to you. How, how does that work if we rely on God's mercy? Not on that kind of perfect balance of justice. The answer in the New Testament is that actually a transformed heart is an, is, is an, uh, 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 an unavoidable, an absolute necessary fruit of a person who has genuinely believed the gospel. So that on the last day, in fact, books will be opened. Our, our, our works will be assessed. 
as evidence of whether we really believe the gospel. So Jesus is saying on that last day, I will be looking for evidence that you were truly transformed by that message of forgiveness. And you will effectively be judged according to the evidence that there was in your life. That's a, that's a shocking thing, isn't it? Imagine the uh, the man at the uh, door of the 1960s church when that other black brother turns up to worship. That man eventually dies and goes to the pearly gates and um, the angel says, um, my records tell me that you turned black people away because of the color of their skin. I'm sorry to have to tell you that your skin color doesn't match Jesus's He's a nice Middle Eastern olive brown. And he's committed to welcoming anyone of any color who welcomes other people of any color. But I'm afraid you didn't. And he's turned away at the door. Imagine the, uh, the churchgoer who uh, shuns a sexually promiscuous person. They too are at the pearly gates and the angel says, I actually have a full transcript here of your thoughts and your private internet activity. And it says here, that uh, you had sexual encounters with three times as many people as that person you shunned. And I'm afraid because you shunned them, we are shunning you. Or imagine the radical... Christian eco-activist who uh, gets involved in, the, in, in condemning the world for its conspicuous consumption. And uh, the angel says, I'm, I'm sorry, I've actually, I've actually had a look at your carbon footprint as you lived on this earth. And I've done the calculations and you're responsible for the death of 0.8735 of a person. And I'm afraid by your own standards, that's enough for you to be cast out. Of course, 
in Oxford, roads must fall, along with who knows how many other dodgy characters who are um, lifted up high in this city. But you see, if we do it with the attitude of mind of I, on the other hand, deserve to be lifted up. Then on the last day, we must fall. That's what Jesus is saying. As James puts it, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who will not be merciful. Be careful of your moral campaigns. And in particular, how you conduct them. There is a judgmentalism that arises in any group that has moral ideals, including the church, but not exclusively the church. There is a judgmentalism. And Jesus says people who have that in their heart should tremble. Because in the same way that they have judged others, they will be judged on the last day. Judge not, or you will be judged. Christians of all people should know that we rely on the mercy and grace of God and therefore must live it out. Christians more than any, uh, more than all people then, says Jesus, should believe in the priority of humble self-examination. First, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is intentionally <coughs> using ludicrous Im ludicrous imagery here. He's, you know, he says, you know, imagine you've got a big bit of four by two stuck in your eye, and there you are walking around with it, sort of clattering into people. And there's someone that you meet, you know, sort of three point six meters away because of the bit of wood, um, that that uh, that that has a tiny little speck in their eye. And you idiot, you think, with that sticking out of your eye, you can, do, you can do the delicate surgery to help them. It is supposed to make, us, uh, to make us chuckle, but there is a deeply serious message to it. The plank may be some moral failure that we've just ignored and it has grown to enormous proportions that we've just tried to 
pretend doesn't exist? Maybe people don't see it all the time. Maybe it's in the hiddenness of your own home or your own heart. But it is big. It is blinding. It may be the very self-righteousness itself. The very attitude that we walk around with that uh, I am not prone to those sins. Like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. That, according to Jesus in the Gospels, is perhaps the biggest plank that sticks out of religious people's eyes. No, says Jesus, that is a preposterous thing. How could you possibly think that you can help any other person when you are wandering around with that unexamined sin in your life? Notice, Jesus is not saying you just have to wander around with it and that's that. You know, I've got this plank. What can I do about it? First, he says, remove the plank from your own eye. In other words, he is calling us to moral reform. He is calling us to change. He is calling us to identify those things that are in our life and do battle with them. We must do that. Jesus' message is not just abandon any commitment to righteousness and good living. Quite the opposite. But he's saying first we work on ourselves. First we work on our own hearts. First we deal with our own sins. Then, he says, it is also still appropriate to challenge and, and, and encourage and help others who are struggling in sins. He's not in saying leave them totally alone. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will be able to remove the speck from your brother's eye, he says. So there is an expectation that there will be a humble approach to one another and, and at times perhaps challenge and encouragement, but always with the sense that I do battle with my own sins first. And I could, couldn't possibly be so impudent as to think that I can walk around with this weakness unaddressed, but sort out everyone else's problems for them. That is the attitude of heart, you see, that Jesus calls Christian believers to. It is intensely morally serious. Don't miss that.
But it is also intensely aware of our own weaknesses and our need to be gentle and patient and kind towards others. You probably know the story of the woman caught in adultery in, uh, recorded in John chapter 8. This woman is brought to Jesus um, by uh, the Pharisees, saying, according to our law, she should be stoned to death. And uh, Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And this brings a, a sense of moral conviction upon the crowd, so that one by one they all go away. And then we're told Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, uh, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. There is no condemnation, neither do I condemn you. So there is a gentle call. Go now and leave your life of sin. Interestingly, that story <coughs> um, appears in a digest of uh, Christian teaching produced by the Chinese government to be used in Chinese schools. However, they have adjusted it a little. Still the same story. Jesus challenges him, he without sin and so on. And still all the people go away until only uh, Jesus and the woman is left. And then the ch it has been written, when the crowd disappeared, Jesus stoned the sinner to death, saying, I too am a sinner. But if the law could only be executed by men without blemish, the law would be dead. Leaving aside um, the question, the theological question of whether Jesus was a sinner, do you, do, you, do you get it? And I don't particularly blame the Chinese government. Because that reflex is in culture after culture and person after person. We must judge. We have that deep urge to judge others. Surely without some kind of judgment like that, the law would be dead, as the Chinese version has it. Tom Holland, um, uh, who is uh, not a Christian but uh, very interested in such things, points out that uh, in, in Islam there is a similar story from the uh, Middle Ages, that's told, um, woman in adultery, Jesus makes that makes the challenge. Um, John the Baptist steps forward and stones her to death. Again and again and again, this 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 radical, no condemnation message. seems to violate our very sense of justice and yet it is vital 
and central in Jesus' teaching. And it is central in the gospel. A week ago last Monday, a uh, radicalized Muslim man killed the MP David Amos with a knife. And then the newspapers have all recorded. He sat down by his body and waited. Because in that moment, he was convinced that he was entirely in the right. Many, many commentators have suggested that that is just the horrific, gory pinnacle of a mountain that we are building in this country of self-righteousness and hatred towards others and condemnation and anger and bitterness and rage. And I want to suggest to you that the only answer to that is the message of Jesus Christ. The message of grace. The message of forgiveness. I want to suggest to you that that is what we stand for here as the people of God. And yes, it feels uncomfortable at times. And yes, it feels much more complicated than a simple um, moral message and condemnation of the, uh, of the rest of the world. Because we are saying both at the same time that we stand for standards uh, that Jesus calls us to, that we have failed and we recognize that others will fail. Indeed, it is essential to us that we acknowledge that. Because without it, we would either be self-righteous hypocrites or totally despairingly self-condemned. So here is where we stand as a church. In an angry world. And I want to suggest to you as that is vital for you as an individual as well. You see, you may not have grasped the reality of the gospel, the depth of the gospel, that if we are brought under judgment, we will be condemned. But thank God and Jesus Christ that Christ died on the cross for our sins, paid the penalty for all of our sins, and therefore we need fear none of those sins because as we put our faith in Jesus, we are promised his grace and his mercy, not because we're somehow good, but indeed because we recognize that we were not. If you have not ever traveled that path, then I want to call you to do that. And I want to say it will revolutionize your heart too. Because now, 
you will be able to approach fellow sinners with a gentleness and a kindness and a patience without ever losing sight of the calling that Jesus has to, on us to follow him. Because we too know our weaknesses. You track down through human history. You will find again and again and again that in the absence of the Christian gospel, you find human beings aggressively and brutally relating to each other as mutually self-righteous and, and condemning. To give you one example, an example that not that that gets mis um, explained so often. If you looked at the nineteenth century, when atheism was starting to raise its head, and uh, people were doubting the existence of God, it was the atheists that had a moral panic. People like George Eliot. The atheists who, who, for instance, treated prostitutes as a dangerous scourge and moral contagion on human society that needed to be eliminated and eradicated to protect the morals of people. And it was the Christians who recognized that there were all kinds of complicated reasons why people, women, fell into prostitution. And they started refuges to help them, put them back in society. There was a 16th century uh, minister called John Bradford, who it is said used to watch people condemned to death going to the scaffold. And with a tear in his eye, I would say, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. But again and again and again, the truly revolutionary people have been the Christians who have lived amongst all the moral mess that every society throws up. And have simply said there, but for the grace of God, go I. Judge not, says Jesus, lest you be judged. Let the message of Jesus revolutionize your heart. We come before you, Heavenly Father, first of all, each one of us uh, probably dimly aware 
that we are much worse than that veneer on the surface suggests. <coughs> but you have seen it all, Lord. And you love to be merciful to those who cry out to you. And so we do just that. And honestly, Lord, we come before you as those who so easily judge others. As those who so easily want to pick the speck out of another's eye. And ignore the great plank in our own. We pray, Lord, let your mercy to us be so transforming that we live gentle, kind, merciful, patient lives with those around us. And Lord, for our society, we pray. As people are so much more angry, so much more certain that they are right and the rest of the world are totally wrong. We ask, Lord, that you'll use us and brothers and sisters who know Jesus to be instruments of peace and reconciliation. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.